Welcome to the Consortium Podcast, an academic audio blog of Kepler Education. Kepler is a consortium of independent classical Christian teachers unified by a shared vision for student flourishing. Welcome, I'm Scott Postma, your host, and I'm joined by Joffrey Swade, our co-host and academic advisor, and we have a guest today, Joffrey. A very special guest, the father of one of my rugby athletes. I'm a rugby coach. Uh-huh. And that's why he's here today. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> but we are that's... welcoming Will Boyd, science teacher extraordinaire. Welcome, Will. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, I'm so glad that you were able to join us. So tell us a little bit about Will, Joffrey, maybe... Let our listeners know who he is. Yeah, so uh, Will has a, a, a master's from the University of Idaho in natural resources. Interesting. Uh, so I'm looking forward to talking to him about ecology. And he teaches at junior high and high schools all over the land. Mm-hmm. He's an advocate for science education. Has a new science program coming out with Canon Press, which I'm going to love to hear about uh, at some point in, in today's podcast. And he is the president of the Homeschool Institute of Science. Yeah, his ink. How, how long have you been doing the Homeschool Institute of Science? Founded in 2013. Fabulous, fabulous. That was the outworking of my master's project. Okay, okay. Went, went there to to uh, try to enrich, develop a program to enrich homeschool science and left with a nonprofit. Wonderful. That's, that's fabulous. I, I'm really excited that you're here with us for a number of reasons. I mean, there's so many things that we could talk about and it's not, you know, we're not going to be able to exhaust everything I actually want to talk about. I know Joffrey probably want to, wants to ask you some questions too, but one of the things that we're really excited about getting into in terms of homeschooling families um, approaching science and uh, in, in classical Christian education. And there seems to be a sort of, I don't know, divide or a rub between, you know, the sciences and STEM. Sometimes it's categorized this way against the humanities. But there's this fabulous question that Stratford Caldecott asks, and I think it might be a good prompt to kind of get us going um, in, in talking about science and the imagination. But he asks, what kind of education would enable a child to progress in the rational understanding of the world without losing his poetic and artistic appreciation of it. What do you think about that? I just think it's a, it's an honorable goal. Mm-hmm. The fact that he put all that in one kind of pithy question says a lot about the, the author. Mm-hmm. He, he sees that rationality alone can lead to this, this sterile a kind of crass um, understanding of the natural world. A, 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 um, a distancing from it when um, that sense of wonder is critical. That sense of wonder is going to drive a student to be more and more interested in science or a sense of wonder for whatever the child is interested in studying. And so that's a, that's a fantastic goal to start with. So do you think that science and imagination can be married or, you know, we were joking a little bit before the show, the old, um, you know, scene in Nacho Libre where, where he's trying to baptize his, his friend and he's, you know, I believe in science as if those two are, you know, divorced. Can or they, as if science is a religion. Sorry, or, couldn't yeah. help but interject. <laughs> no, no, that's good. I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad you did as if it is, yeah, it yeah. Is its own kind of religion. Can they be married? Can they, you know? Yeah, they are. I would say it's a, it's a faulty understanding of how science works. Mm. And so, so if you were to just kind of start at the very top, what is science, and not to go towards the, uh, the fallacy of uh, etymology that uh, we were chatting a little bit about earlier, science is, it does mean all knowledge. We know mm-hmm. that that's originally what it meant. But today, in our, in our age of specialization, uh, for better or worse, uh, science is really two things. It's an in, increasing, ever-increasing and refining body of knowledge, 
And it's also a process for uh, putting into place to understand and study how the natural world works. So it's a process and it's a body of knowledge. I, I call it knowledge and know-how. It's both those things. So, now, so science is technique. It is technique. First and foremost, mm. the facts we derive, we derive because of that technique. You know what's really fabulous about that? And, and, and this may be just a rabbit trail for a moment, but that's how we talk about classical education, right? It is both a process and sense of grammar, logic, rhetoric, you know, going into the quadrivium. And it's also a body of knowledge that we are operating in. And so, you know, in, in a very fundamental sense, they seem to be very like each other. And we, we use the word science. I was the one who was talking about the etymological fallacy before the, <laughs> the show. It's my favorite fallacy. Uh, but you know, we, we kind of continuing that vein, though, we use the word science with this technique emphasis and all walks out. Like we could talk about poetry. If I say the art of poetry, well, you picture is very nebulous, but if I say the science of poetry, yeah. you immediately picture meter, right? You picture, you picture scanning, you picture versification and the techniques that are actually used in poetry are immediately what you picture. Yeah. That's a really good point. And so we were talking about equivocation earlier as well. And so science definitely, it can, it does mean several things. And so using it in that sense, uh, definitely means something more precise, something more uh, systematic or, or technical in nature. So when we talk about science in terms of homeschool and classical education, one of the goals for our show is to help families um, educate and have the resources and, and know, you know, what they can do. Um, what, what role does, does teaching the sciences or practicing science, what role does that play in a homeschool family, obviously you're, you're working primarily in that, you know, that area. Yeah, I would say I've encountered a, a couple of different um, philosophies on that over the years. Some folks I've talked to suggest leaving science out entirely until secondary. Um, you know, and so other folks have suggested kind of having it as more of a, more of a stepsister or stepbrother role uh, compared with grammar or math or, or literature. And I think the most important thing, the one thing that families can do at the elementary level is to have their kids spend time outside oh, observing. Yeah. And that can take so many different uh, shapes or forms. I think the family should tailor it to meet their family's interests, the kids' interests, their geographic location, their association and, and social networks um, to design something that really can be fun. If they're gardeners, mm. hey, then that's, that's a no-brainer. If they're bird watchers, that's a no-brainer. Um, and so spending out, out time outside, some, I would say the majority of that time could be unstructured at the elementary age. Uh, but once they're getting towards late elementary, you can start to introduce some ideas such as hypothesis formation um, and, and actually recording data and that kind of thing at home. Like, like counting legs of insects and stuff like that. Yeah, <laughs> or let's get a species diversity uh, for, the, for the Christmas bird count at our bird feeder this winter. We'll, we'll write down the number of species. We'll write how many individuals of each species. And we could even have a list of associated behaviors that we saw in each of these creatures. So if, if a family was going to practice, let's use the bird illustration there. Um, so they set up a bird feeder and, um, and they, they record, they journal this, this information. How, how does this play then into the, um, 
how does this play into the the broader you know homeschool you know grading um you know all all the things that we have to do to to report you know because a lot of families are thinking okay that would be a fun you know that'd be a fun thing to do it'd take a lot of commitment to do something like that um how do they learn what you know can you just maybe expound a little bit on that yeah i say a couple of things there um first um, having having the science process in mind. And mm-hmm. so science process side by side with science knowledge. And so the twin goals for a given school year, let's say they start this fall and they've got their bird feeders up. They want their child to get better uh, with content understanding in mm-hmm. a certain science area, but they also want a little bit of an understanding uh, as far as science process goes. And so I would, I would tear the science process apart and I'll ha- I can link some resources on that kind of thing for for folks if they're interested. Um, and then uh, starting, starting at either end, this is key. Mm-hmm. This is where we get back to science and imagination. Science is creative. It's not, I did the seven steps of the scientific method. I, <laughs> I don't even use the word method because it evokes this image of a lab coat science right. teacher in high school making kids memorize seven steps that are always linear. Mm-hmm. Right. And science doesn't work that way because science interacts with, with the socioeconomic world and uh, science, scientists interact with one another. Um, and so thinking of science process holistically, pick one place to start on that science process. Let's say there's five or seven steps. Pick one place to start. Did, did we make a, an observation of a bird today? All right, let's start right there. That observation should lead to some type of question. And so a connecting observation with question, I would say is step one for, for the homeschool science student. Um, and it could, be, it could be a number of different types of questions. Uh, what type of bird is that? Uh, what, what type of seed does that bird like to eat? What does that bird do once it has a seed in its mouth? Mm. And does let it, me interject just to, just to point out, because it's such a, an easy, quick step, what you just described, uh, that, that we may miss the fact that you need imagination to ask a question. Yes. Absolutely. Right? If, you are, if you are unimaginative, you will observe the bird and have no questions of God. <laughs> right? Yes. So, so you're fostering the imagination yes. by seeking to ask questions. That's an excellent point. Absolutely. And so, yeah, that's a point of creativity right there. And, and you might find after observing for a while that there are three different types of birds. And one bird takes the seed to this branch and holds it between its toes and pecks at it. Another uh, discards the shell just with its beak and swallows it whole. Another might take it to the ground. And another might just store it in its, in its crop or in its, in its uh, cheek pouches and keep piling more in. And so those, and this is a beautiful thing because we know our God is creative. Yeah. And so certainly we should be thinking creatively when we start to observe nature. How, what are all the little things the Lord built in mm. to this process of a bird eating, which seems kind of simple. Well, it, it does seem simple in, you know, from that standpoint in terms of we, you know, observe birds eating all the time or, or you know, those things, but using the imagination to ask questions. Um, I wonder then how, you know, in, in a, say, a science regimen for a homeschool family, do we start, it sounds like we start with natural sciences and then maybe move to the more physical, you know, in, in terms of technical sciences, say physics and, and things like that. How would you recommend in a practical sense, maybe a family progress in these areas? Yeah, that's a tough question. I'm, I'm, ter- I'm terrible. I'm not a methodologist at all. Mm-hmm. And so I've seen a thousand different approaches and I think there's val- validity in all of them. I think it's more natural to, for the parent, first and foremost, to watch their kid mm. be a student of your child. What does this child um, find themselves inclined to? 
Are they in Gaga land when they hear about NASA anything, or do they want to see the stars? Uh, do they love the idea of robotics? Whatever that inclination is, I would say that's the starting point. That's wonderful. We've talked about that, you know, Joffrey. And I yeah, I mean, you're, you're you're speaking Kepler's language yeah. here, and you know, as far as you know, the the family really are, are the ones who determine how education should be, and it's in a responsive way. It's in a way that shows that you've, you've studied your kids, and you know, kind of re- referencing back to something you were talking about earlier. <clears throat> I'm I'm a, a big fan, given you know what we've been saying about the, the sovereignty of the family here, of the idea you know, if the state requires that my second grader take a a, a science class, um, and I just kick him out into the backyard every afternoon. <laughs> if I want to say that's a science class, I get to do that. This is right. a very important Absolutely. point. But at the same time, we want we want excellence for our kids, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean uh, more rigidity, like more rigid schedule. We, we want excellence. We want to love good things and, and teach our kids to love and make good things. So with that motivation behind us, how do parents prepare themselves to educate their children in the sciences? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, maybe they don't sign up for a chemistry class, right? <laughs> right. But surely there's some way I can prepare myself. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm The way I have done this, I've developed a couple of, uh, one was a more of a video-based curriculum, just curating YouTube videos. I would just get on, get on the internet, search around. Uh, your kid is interested in robotics, or your kid is interested in bird watching, And you, look, you start looking for educational resources. Some you're going to think, oh, this is, this is junk. I don't want anything to do with this. Some you're going to pick up little bits and pieces. And some you're going to think that's exactly what I want. And so you, you make that list of initial resources that you find, whether it's a, a YouTube channel or whether it's a textbook or whether it's uh, some other resource. And that starts to form your outline mm. for the elementary ages. Well, <clears throat> a sort of similar answer to that question. I think Joffrey was, that's a, a fabulous question. We've oftentimes like in the humanities talked about being the first learner, right? Because sometimes you're going to explore an area that you just don't know. And I think the parents could be the first learner. They could, right. you know, I don't really know exactly, you know, what it is I need to do or, or I don't know anything about birds. So they become the first learner and, and they begin to kind of lead and learn along with, you know, with the kids. I think that would be a really, I, I'm sort of hearing you say that. Yeah. You know. And I'd say along with that, you know, you know, as you guys know, learning is a community endeavor. Mm-hmm. And so if you're part of a co-op, if you're part of a, a church group that is homeschooling, if you're a part of any type of social network, you want to lean on those people as well. Some are going to be scientists. Some are just going to be big fans of nature. And some are going to be in the exact same place you were a year or two ago. Some of us have the opportunity of having a scientist in our community. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so like I mean, speaking of, of all that, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what the Homeschool Institute of Science does? Yeah. So we've done a number of things over the years, local and regional here to the Inland Northwest. Uh, including monthly field trips to STEM-related businesses. Uh, we did, did a field trip to the Cedar Mill in, in Troy, done field trips to Schweitzer Engineering Lab, done field trips to the uh, Biological Control Center of the Nez Perce Tribe. Um, just big picture goal, broadening horizons for what possibilities are out there in science. Mm. It's not just you can be a doctor or some other, you know, another one's not coming to mind right now, but the number of possible niches for careers or just hobbies or interests is tremendous. And so trying to broadcast those, we supported a number of educational robotics teams over the years and just general homeschool support for, for local families. 
um, making microscope donations, uh, renting equipment, uh, that kind of thing. Anything we can do, uh, providing guest speakers, um, anything we can do to enrich and, and really cap that one kid. Uh, most of the parents who contact me have that one kid who's science inclined. Right. You know, and I want to, I want to debunk that today too, if we have time. Um, but for that parent, I just pour resources out. Here are all the possible things uh, that we can support you with, or here's another another type of equipment or material that we can support you with. One of the things we've done that's been more successful recently is contacting science educational resource manufacturers and requesting free materials and then giving them away to homeschooling parents to review. Mm. And so they get to use them for free and they get to review them for, for us. We'll we'll put the um, link to the um, center in the uh, in the, the show notes, you know, along with some other resources, just so our listeners know that. I'd we, love for you to debunk that. Yeah, though. I was yeah. just going to say, yeah. let's let's hear so this. We, even in our even in our conversation, you know, uh, we kind of have this idea of that's the science person, that's the science guy, that's the science girl. Oh yeah, that that guy's a science person, and that, what that tends to mean is that person's uh, either highly analytical or they are good at memorizing, or you just know that they're involved in some type of science work. And so I would say that's, that's one of our major stumbling blocks at the high school level, mm. is these kids who aren't good memorizers are told that the good memorizers are the science people, and they're not. Mm. And that's, a, I think we lose a lion's share of people who might go into science otherwise. What what is then? Um, I, I mean, I I can think of some obvious responses to that, but what is your response to that to a parent who or or even to you know some influence that would would project that onto a student? Yeah, I would I would say, oh yeah, well that yeah, he's a really good memorizer. If if they're saying, oh, I think my I wouldn't have that response to a parent. I'd have a different response to the either the kid or to the administrator. Mm. If a parent says that their kid's science inclined, I'm just going to take their word for it and he, and pour out as much as I can. Yeah. But if it's a student I'm talking with, um, I, want, I want to make a distinction between uh, the different parts of science that might, might work better for certain skill sets. And I want to highlight the importance of creativity in the sciences. Right. And I do that in my classroom. Um, yeah. And I, I, you know, I learned this by messing up. Mm-hmm. I remember last year, I realized fourth quarter, almost all of my dissections were fourth quarter. And there's a lot of artwork that comes with those dissections. And all of a sudden, this. 25 to 30% of students that weren't shining, they just shone brightly in the fourth quarter. And wow. I realized I'd done them a disservice. I should have spaced those assignments out throughout the year. And it's made me question, what do we even mean by rigor? Mm. And yes. I think we have to reassess rigor um, and include create rigorous, creative types of activities and lessons in the classroom that, um, that draw out those students that maybe aren't analytical or, or good at memorizing. I think it's fascinating to you know, being in the field that Scott and I are in, getting to talk to teachers who teach all sorts of different things and, and watching them and, and we ourselves going through the same process um, come more and more to grips with how integration works, yeah. right? And how whole all of our subjects really end up being right. Yeah. I, one of the things you were just talking about reminded me of, um, I, I remember reading James Watson's double helix, you know, his basic the biography and, and reading that. And the, uh, epiphany for me was just how human <laughs> doing science really is. It, it's not quite as, you know, analytical as you mentioned, you know, these, we go by these steps. A lot of it was guesswork. Um, they were, <laughs> I, I mean, 
they were messing around with psychedelic drugs at the time. I mean, they were doing all kinds of, of, you know, weird things that would not have what we would have thought of, you know, lent to, um, you know, them making these discoveries. And yet some of it was just play. Some of it was just trying to figure out and observe and play and then, you know, discovering something. And that's what I'm hearing you say that, you know, this, this idea of science being so human. Yeah. And I have two thoughts there. One, one of my end goals, and this emerged after maybe three or four years of teaching online, I noticed that the best students would all do something really similar. Mm. They would have the guts to speculate scientifically. They'd raise their hand and they'd make a wild speculation. Mm. That was very scientifically valid based on what they learned thus far that year or that they already came to the class with. And that, that's become one of my primary goals. Can you, can you speculate scientifically? And that connects imagination to science as well. Because mm-hmm. speculation, uh, we were having this conversation at the Logos teacher training. Uh, speculation, not so good maybe in theology class. <laughs> sure. Very good in science class. And of course, that, rub, that probably would rub against the mainstream establishment yeah. where science is more dogmatic. Um, but the other thing I was going to mention there, as I noticed that students the couple of activities they loved the most were the ones where they got to use their creative skills. I have, I have my students do a skit uh, outlining or showing, demonstrating mitosis, mm. cellular division. And those skits, they, they just poured their hearts and soul into them. And they were hilarious. <laughs> and they did a really great job. And so I realized, well, this is a really rigorous activity mm-hmm. that they need to get a lot of credit for. Yeah. And so I need, to, I need to start to put more of these little creative uh, activities throughout the school year. You know, at, uh, at Kepler, we had, uh, uh, we collected a bunch of uh, pieces of artwork for our, for our student magazines. And uh, my wife is uh, the art teacher at Kepler. And this beautiful drawing came down the pike. And uh, I asked her about this, this amazing student of hers. It wasn't her student, it was someone in biology. <laughs> you know, and it was it was a drawing. It was a plant. And yeah. It was absolutely beautiful. And this class just gave her an opportunity to 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 put that out there. You know, yeah, gave her an opportunity to express something she's learning in another you yeah know, another place. Right. And so as as you're watching those birds, you know, kid is interested in sketching or drawing. Hey, great opportunity right there. I mean, if you're going to turn into a professional photographer, you should have a solid scientific <laughs> education. <laughs> well, one one of the things that is, by the time this episode comes out, this conversation will have already been had, the one I'm about to refer to. But uh, later today, Joffrey is meeting with some of our science teachers to talk about hands-on science online. Mm. and. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that, um, you know, so they're not going to be able to hear it because it'll come out <laughs> afterwards. But but what are your thoughts of, of doing science online? Yeah. But we're talking hands-on. Like you're- so I was really skeptical of it before I became an online teacher. It was, it was kind of one of my dogmas that I held in my back pocket. Hands-on science is incredibly important. Mm. Um, and I thought it really couldn't be done well in the online setting. Um, it can be done well. It has to be done a little bit differently. Mm. And so one of the things that works incredibly well, and I've mentioned it already, and it's pretty simple, is having uh, whatever, if it's a graphic illustration where you're dropping a textbook and then dropping a piece of paper to see which falls faster and then talk about why, uh, just have, have a show of hands. All the kids that want to do this experiment, I'll hop up on their webcam, get their webcams on, and I make a big deal of it. You know, mm-hmm. I sell it to them. This is the first intercontinental physical <laughs> science experiment, 2021. And uh, we, you know, we have kids from four or five states, maybe three countries up there, all dropping the book and the paper at the same time. And then someone's recording all the data. 
And then we talk about the findings. Um, and so everyone's actually incorporated into that experiment together and doing it together. Yeah, it's so great. And it, it's interesting how, you know, certain doors close and other doors open. Right. Of course, you know, there, there are certain things that you can't replace, you know, the, 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 the joy of being physically together. But, you know, we have a, a, a teacher, Matthew Hunter, um, is, is currently teaching a foraging class. I saw that title when it came up. Oh, I man. thought, good on you, yeah. sir. <laughs> and, well, he taught a survival course before that, and, and Wilderness Survival is available again this fall. But uh, So th- that class, you know, it, it filled up. We had to close it and you know, say, you know, say no more. Oh, good. And um, so these kids are, are picking plants and eating them under supervision, of course, from all <laughs> over the country. That's that means that Alaskans... And Arizonans and New Jerseyans, they're eating different things. Mm. And the whole class sees that. And that's an opportunity you wouldn't have if everyone were in one place. You'd all be looking for the same thing, and that would be very cool. But suddenly you have, oh, that's what they have in Alaska? Weird. You can't do that in the classroom, brick and mortar style at all. Right. I love that. Uh, I'm remembered of a marine biology class where one of the students lived in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Uh And she went down to the dock and came back to class with a barracuda for dissection. Wow. wow. And it, it, just, it just made everyone's year. Yeah. You know? yeah it yeah. was tremendous. And had students in Manaus uh, who would bring wildflowers or, or caught a fish or brought a fish from the fish market. And so one thing that online teachers can do, they can, they can make place-based amendments or exceptions to assignments. Right. That's critically important. You don't want the kid in Manaus to dissect a perch from Carolina Biological Supply. <laughs> Manaus is, is in the north of Brazil, by the way. Yeah. That is lame. <laughs> Go to the fish market. Right, right. If you're in Seoul, Korea, please go to the fish market. Don't don't order some preserved specimen. Yeah. So That's, any type of natural uh, sciences, I think, really reap some major rewards from having a diversity of students all over the planet. Yeah. 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 And I think, as you were saying earlier, it, we, we just have to change the mindset in how we go about doing things, right, and not expect it to be the same way that we would have done in class. And I don't know that we could have done what we're doing today on in online education even 10 years ago, you know, be, just because the technology wasn't available. Right. Yeah. But with the technologies that are available today, it really is in many ways like sitting in the classroom um, with people from across the world, and you wouldn't have that in an embodied experience. It's a really fun experience. I was on a webinar earlier today that a biological um, science resource uh, company was putting on and I was put in a breakout room and there were three of us and the other two teachers, one was from Massachusetts and one was from California. Wow. And we just, we just had a good old time. From all across the, that's, from that's, all fabulous. The US. that's fabulous. Well, Joffrey, you had a question um, that uh, I want to lay out in terms of a practical application to science and I want to be able to make sure we have some time to talk about that. You want to give that question to Will? Yeah. So, I mean, I'd really loved as we approach the end of the episode to get some, some concrete ideas for families in how to incorporate a science education. You know, so homeschoolers who have eight-year-olds who have 10-year-olds who have 17-year-olds, you know, you've, you've already hinted, you've talked about a lot of these things, having flexibility and enthusiasm. And, and you know, Scott, you mentioned being a pre-learner or a first learner. Um, but yeah, so how, would, how do families incorporate a good science education? Because, you know, science, use, you know, so broadly, is, is one of those things that uh, it's easy for families to decide well, we'll do a, sh- a shabby job of it, and that's okay, mm-hmm. right? People do that sometimes with languages, uh, but you know, I think I think science is the other one where that happens. You know, it's like we we're not really able to teach chemistry, so 
we'll just ignore it. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. You know, not to, not to beat my own drum, but I would check out the homeschool Institute of science, homeschoolscience.org, mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of resources and, and ideas and links to what I think are the best of the best out there. Um, another important thing to connect here is, and I would say this gets back to being a, a good student of your children, but I want to give you something concrete also. And so most kids are interested in, in, in physical matter in one of two primary ways. That way is going to either be as an observer, they like to sit and watch stuff happen, or as more of an active par- participant, uh, you, you know, the kind of kid you go to the, the, the thrift store and buy an old alarm clock and he takes it apart and tries to put it back together. So we kind of have the manipulator um, and builder destroyer, and then you have more of the kind of the detached observer type. So figure out which type your kids are, but also, you know, the Bible is just replete with wonderful examples. Uh, And I would say also uh, a bit of a a structure of sorts for how we should approach these types of things. And Mm. I would say primarily it it approaches it in kind of a seasonal fashion. And Mm. so I think, I think seasonal science learning, especially seasonal nature learning is a nice, a nice handle or a nice umbrella to hang your, your activities on, especially in the early years. Yeah, that's really helpful. I love the thought of, of the, the rhythm of the world, the rhythm of creation informing, maybe even dictating how we, how we educate our kids when, when it comes to creation itself. Well, yeah, I, as you were just describing that, <clears throat> I was thinking of my uh, neighbor. We recently moved out uh, of we're not in Moscow, so we're out up in the mountains, you know, up in the in the the timbers. And I was getting a little antsy, uh, you know, in for for the snow to melt and and to be able to you know get on with some projects. And the old timer that's my neighbor, you know, he just said, "Well, you know, uh, the nature is going to dictate when you uh, have your schedule, you know, so you you can't rush that. You just have to wait." And and it really brought me back kind of a, a Wendell Berry-esque moment there to realize that we are so artificially detached sometimes mm. from the world that we, you know, we, we think we can control all of it. And I think a really interesting approach to science is what you were just talking about, letting it dictate to us what we can, what we can yeah, learn. Why, why buy the plastic fake tool set and workbench where the kid can hammer plastic pegs through a pre-made hole with a plastic hammer? Mm. Just wait a year and then give them a hammer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it doesn't make sense to make up, like you, you said it well, uh, mm. making toys that are kind of artificially simulating what nature's already doing. Mm-hmm. I think um, regarding this, this more seasonal aspect of science, it requires more patience. And Josh, Joffrey was getting at this earlier, talking about slow down. We, we, just, we just glossed over something huge to be curious about this observation and start asking questions. We have to slow down and be patient mm-hmm. and not think that science is this is this kind of rote mechanical mm. type of thing that doesn't require creativity and yeah. thoughtfulness. And there, I, th- I would say there's still very much a kind of this divorce or well, two divorces. One classical education science is still kind of figuring out where it belongs. Mm-hmm. Right. And we're going to work on that together. And I'm sure we're going to solve that problem, but more, maybe a more fundamental problem, which is theological is that we tend to kind of throw up our hands at general revelation. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we love God's word and there are so many good Bible teachers out there and there's good theology. Uh, but general revelation, which many, many solid theologians have called the second book, mm-hmm. uh, that's something Spurgeon said, uh, and others, uh, we have a tremendous amount to learn there about the Lord and about his provision for us. You know, you're talking about general, general revelation and also issuing this call for patience <clears throat> actually makes me 
like I, I picture someone like like James Audubon, right? You, you sit down cross legged on a on on a on a green slope, and you just sit there for hours, and you watch the birds, and you start to draw, and you jot down some lines of verse, and you remember something from a book you read, then you observe a behavior from the bird that surprises you. You know, r- really, it's such a tragedy how deeply we separate all the disciplines. Uh-huh. You know, imagine if you studied science by sitting on a green slope with a notebook and a pencil. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, and that's a challenging thing to hear if you're a homeschooling parent, because mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. you're strapped to kind of make things, make ends meet and you're having you're to juggling work. multiple kids. Yeah. And you're working a lot. Um, but yeah, setting aside some time and to have the opportunity to show you want to demonstrate that patience. And oftentimes it's the kid really demonstrating the patience to us. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. You're like, yeah. Oh yeah, man, I would probably see more of that stuff if I was acting like my eight year old. Um, mm, yeah. yeah. Looking yeah. At, the, at the world from that perspective. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned a moment ago about, you know, uh, general revelation and um, you know, the two books, Galileo, um, uh, you know, famously in, in his work, identified the fact that general revelation can actually give us some insight into our theology as well by observing, you know, it's not that he said, not that scripture is ever wrong, but sometimes we look at scripture wrong. And when, you know, nature teaches us what scripture actually means, right. And that goes back to the, you know, Copernicus and the planets and all goes that. back to Job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, one one final thing that I want to see if I wanted I wanted to save this to the last in case we didn't have enough time. I'm going to interrupt just to say that I really hope you're about to put him on the spot. I'm going. I hope to. this one's a doozy. <laughs> well, what what I think you you mentioned a moment ago, you said we're going to solve this problem, and you and I have talked before about this about you know science in classical education and and the way that even though we really in classical education tout the integration of education, we still treat science sometimes like the stepchild, right? You know, it's important, but nobody really knows what to do with it. You know, that, yeah. that, that kind of thing. But you and I have also talked about an idea of about conservation in terms of the commons and mm. and ways that we typically as Christians seem to do the same thing, I think, with conservation in terms of our commitment to capitalism and our commitment to free market and those things. Um but but you have some interesting ideas, and I just think it'd be worth talking about for a moment since we have the the time. You know, we've got a few minutes before we have to wrap up. Um, how should we talk about conservation and understanding conservation as Christian homeschooling families? I think Brian, and this fits right in with what we're talking about regarding elementary education. Those kids are gonna they're gonna notice a new plant, and you're maybe you'll eventually provide a name to that plant. And that's going to become important to them. Mm-hmm. They're probably going to talk about that plant for like two weeks or maybe more, or they, or they saw a new bird and they hadn't seen that one before. Maybe they're asking you to help identify it. And they're going to remember that moment uh, and they're going to come back to it over the next months, uh, even maybe more time than that. And so I would say that that phenomenon gets at the importance of God's manifest uh, handiwork. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made all these things uh, by speaking. And so they're incredibly important. Do we value them as much as God does? I think one of the things we're afraid of, we're afraid of this verse in Romans. We're afraid that we're going to somehow accidentally start worshiping the creature instead of the creator. It ain't going to happen most of the time. Right. It's not, we're not going to have this, you know, belly flop flop slide into pantheism all of a sudden (laughs) if we appreciate God's creation. Right. And so I'd say appreciating is step one. Uh, but the second one is also just an analysis of our of our presuppositions 
uh, regarding environmentalism and conservation and stewardship. And uh, I think we, we fall into this trap of, of kind of repeating the talking points uh, that we hear instead of actually listening to the whole story or, or reading the whole article. Uh, if we get the sense that it smacks of environmentalism, we tend to stop. Yeah. And yeah. so and pushing through and, and actually gleaning out uh, the good stuff out of there is, is really important. And not being embarrassed. I think that happens to Christians often where, you know, if I'm associated with a particular thought, yes. then I'm not going to look at like as good a Christian as I ought to be. Yeah, that's that's exactly where I was going to go. We, we, we tend to to sort of, you know, um, relate to these ideas in, in a negative sense. And we don't want to be connected to those without, you know, thinking through it and exploring it deeper. I think that was, that was well said, Joffrey. Um, so how do Christians, you know, in, as, as you, you started to go there, I'm going to push you kind of in the corner a little yeah. bit. How do Christians then entertain and think about this? Because, you know, typically when we think of conservation, we think of, you know, some, you know, weirdo in, in, in some, you know, anti, you know, Christian way of, you know, I'm being careful here. Uh, <laughs> was the word weirdo particularly I, I, careful? Well, well, it wasn't, but, but it was general enough that, uh, you know, hopefully, to, but, but we tend to, or at least people are classified that way. Yeah. And, and, and that has been something that's concerned me. And, and probably you're one of the very first people in a conversation that actually brought that up and boldly talked about, you know, our commitment, you know, in a stewardship sort of way and, and married it to our biblical and, and theological, you know, um, position in the world. Yeah, I, I think one of the challenges is uh, whether you're reading an article or just enjoying nature, we don't have to superimpose a capitalistic or economic um, viewpoint on top of it. Yeah. You can take it for what it is. Um, if it comes to a big land management decision, you're going to have to incorporate the environmental or or biological analysis with an economic analysis. But when we do that uh, kind of as this knee-jerk response, we're missing, we're missing the whole story. It's, it's kind of, and I've, I've had to learn this over the years um, since I wasn't educated classically. I'm a pub, public school kid and, and uh, logic is not my forte. And my oldest kids are, are schooling me on logic <laughs> and it's painful sometimes, um, but it's been good. But I would say it's kind of like a, a, a fresh college student just out of the liberal arts Christian college who won't listen to someone because they, um, because they committed a logical fallacy. Yeah, right. You don't stop the conversation because they committed a logical fallacy. You set that aside and you weigh the merits of what they're actually saying. Mm -hmm. And yep. so I think we do the same thing when we read anything that has kind of smacks of something that's conservation related. And that, that sort of thinking can permeate, you know, every level of our experience. So, I mean, you were talking a little bit about land management and how we approach, uh, approach stewardship of the land, but even just, just going for a hike. So, you know, everything becomes a lifestyle choice. And mm -hmm. so, well, well, I'm dressed as a hunter or I'm dressed as a Birkenstock <laughs> right. Patagonia wearing person. And these are like political affiliations. Just go dressed as a Christian, yeah. please. You know, like just right, right. enjoy God's creation yeah. and don't worry about the Birkenstocks and, you know, and whatever. Like just, Absolutely. It's, it's just get out there and be a Christian. Yeah. We need to drop the caricatures yes. that we craft of ourselves and everyone else. That's really good. So our Christianity should transcend all of those and, and love the nature that God created. Mm, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, Will, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule. And I know you're a busy man, and I'm, I'm very thankful that you would come by the studio and, and talk with us and um, talk about science and imagination in homeschooling. And thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So long, everybody. 